Hello. Hello. Welcome to uh, Infinite Cast. A podgest. A podgest. I got to say, the Randy Lynn stuff is sticking with me. Is it? Yeah. I mean, that kind of pre-serial killer, like, animal abuse miasma, I mean, I find it very affecting. Mm. But I don't know. There's another part of me that's like, ah, it's kind of cheap heat, you know? Yeah. Because, you know, I recognize all the... um. The signi- you know, the serial killer signifiers. I've 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 listened to my my fair share of true crime, uh, stuff. Mm-hmm. So you know the the signifiers part of it works. You know, I I I don't know. I get it, and then it's it's effectively creepy. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But I don't know. De- writing with incredible loving detail about a fucked up guy murdering cats. Um, I don't know. Again, it's it's maybe it's like it's like cheap heat. Uh, that's that's always gonna work, is what I'm saying. Oh yeah, sure. But you know, he's got his other quirks. He walks around in like a white toupee, like a powdered wig. Basically, <laughs> he's got to be in the the northernmost part of, of the yeah. He's a he's a quirky uh 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 you know a psychopath boy boss. <laughs> he's a boy boss. He put his whole bussy into into killing those cats. Yeah. It is it is funny that he really can't go anywhere besides uh, meetings in the house. Like he he is between a, a rock and a hard place. Yeah, because people will kill him any other any yeah. other place. Uh, and he'll get picked up by the the finest. Also, uh, the the sort of extrajudicial like status of ETA is funny to me. That like I mean, it seems like Don has had to participate in the legal system because mm-hmm. he had so many warrants and stuff. But like. It also sounds somewhat of a don't ask, don't tell policy. Yeah. I mean, uh, even our understanding of what ETA or not ETA uh, and, uh, and a house and drug and alcohol recovery house it is basically, it is part of the legal system in that it, you, if you get like convicted of certain crimes or whatever, you get sentenced to like go hang out there. Yeah. But it, it is like, <laughs> it's a third play. It, ooh. Um, hmm. What's it? Um, maybe my mic's folding it. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I, it, it becomes a problem. Um, <laughs> That maybe like it's it's like a third place, right? It's like when the bar is the third place between mm-hmm. your home and work, but then you go to the bar too much. The the court orders you to go to a different third place, which is the Ennett House, a third place that's between jail and home. Yeah, but you have to it's live the, there. It's a halfway house. It's purgatory. It's a, lim- it's a liminal space. It is. Uh, yes, Ennett House is a liminal space. <laughs> All right, should we get into it? Let's. I realized I stopped us just short, just short of like just finishing the segment, but I'm reading on my phone because uh, I can't travel with that gigantic brick of a book. Sorry. Uh, also, by the way, uh, thank you to the person who sent me uh, an image of their hardcover mm. Infinite Jest, which is very cool and literally a first edition hardcover Infinite Jest. That's only gonna that's gonna age like a fine uh, fine NFT. Yeah, exactly. The I the person who, a first edition, a real non fungible token. Yes. <laughs> you cannot fungible. You can't fungible. It was already edition, made. What edition the book is. Yeah. L- yes, literally. It is known. Uh, and you literally own it. I.e., if for somebody else to have it, they would have to like break into your house and take your book away. Yeah, which would be a very stupid thing to break into <laughs> somebody's house. In, but anyway, yes, thank you uh, for sending me that picture. Uh, the person who had it, they didn't get it as like a collectible or something. They just said that they picked it up at at the bookstore. Yeah, uh, like it happened to be that week. Yeah. So, uh, 
Buddy, hold on to that one because yeah. uh, it might not be valuable now, but uh, give it another 40 years yeah, and uh, somebody will want to buy a first edition Infinite Jest. <laughs> All right. Let's let's get back into it. Uh, Randy is now walking with Bruce Green, the, the res- resident nice guy. The, the guy who does a good job listening to him uh, when everybody else does not, mm-hmm. right? Because yes. he, he says the well-portioned, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Fucking, fucking A. Fucking A. Uh, so it's not like Lens just wants to blow Green off and tell him to go peddle his papers and let him <laughs> let him the fuck alone after meeting so he can solo. It would have to be handled in a more diplomatic fashion. Plus, Lens finds himself nervous at the prospect of offending Green. It's not like he's scared of Green in terms of physically, and it's not like he's concerned Green would be the Yule or Day type. Uh, or you have to stressfully worry about maybe going and ratting out on Lens's place of whereabouts to the finest and everything like that. Green has a strong air of non-rat about him, which Lens <laughs> admires. So it's not like he's frightened to blow Green off. It's more like very tense and tightly wound. <laughs> Plus, it agitates Lens that he has the feeling that it really wouldn't be any big deal to Green that much one way or the other, and that Lens feels like he's spending all of the stress t- tensely wondering about his side of something that Green would barely think about for more than yeah. a couple seconds. And it enrages Lens that he can know in his head that the tense worry about how to diplomatize Green into leaving him alone is unnecessary <laughs> and a waste of time and tension and yet still not be able to stop worrying about it, which all only increases the sense of powerlessness that Lens is impotent to resolve with his browning and meatloaf as long as Green <laughs> continues to walk home with him. The, the terrible burden of having friends. <laughs> it's a, do I have to keep spending time uh, with this person I, or else they'll kill. stop spending time with me? Yeah, <laughs> yes. Uh, also, do you do you like to think that you give off the strong air of non-rat? I like to think, because I, 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 I am not one. Yes. I, I live by the G-code. Yes, I, um, I, I would hope. I'm a, lo- I'm a locked box, baby. I would like to think the same way. Yeah. Uh, I do not recall. And the, <laughs> and the schizoid cats with clotted fur that lurk around Ennett House, cringing and neurotic and afraid of their own shadow, are too risky, for the female residents are always formulating attachments to them. And Pat M's golden retrievers would be t- t- tattlemount to legal suicide. Tattlemount? Tattlemount to legal suicide. Also, Pat M does not have golden retrievers. She has labs. But, uh, <laughs> but he does not. But he does not understand the difference between types of dogs. Wait, is it literally spelled tattle? Tattlemount. Tattlemount. That's very Legal funny. suicide. On a Saturday, uh, see, uh, two, uh, 2221 hours, Lens found a miniature bird that had fallen out of some nest and was sitting bald and pencil-necked on the lawn of unit number three, flapping ineffectually, and went in with green and ducked green and went back outside to number three's lawn and put the thing in a pocket and went and put it down the garbage disposal in the kitchen sink of the kitchen, but still <laughs> felt largely impotent and unresolved. Except for Pat Montesian's bay-windowed front office and the house manager's phone booth-sized back office and the two live-in staff bedrooms down in the basement, none of the doors inside Ennett House have locks for predictable reasons. Mm. All right. Early November, year of the dependent adult undergarment. That, so that was, that the, was the second. We probably should have just made it to the end of that time. I, did, I just didn't realize how long it was going to go. Um, or, I mean, we, we can go on, but... Uh, I, my opinion still stands with the conclusion of the Randy Lenz uh, segment. Uh, very affecting, but cheap heat, I would say cheap heat. Mm-hmm. It's easy to do serial killer stuff. Yeah. Uh, early November year, the dependent all undergarment. The only bona fide blackmailable thing about Rodney Tyne, Chief U.S. Office of Unspecified Services, his special metric ruler. In a locked drawer of his bathroom cabinets at home on Connecticut Ave, uh, 
NW's, that's Northwest in D.C., mm-hmm. right? In the district is kept a special metric ruler and Tyne measures his penis every a.m. like clockwork. <laughs> Has since 12, still does. Plus a special telescoping traveling model of the ruler he travels with uh, for or the ruler he travels with for on the road AM penis measurement. <laughs> uh, President Gentle has no NSA, which takes us to endnote uh, 228. National Security Agency absorbed with ATF and DEA, CIA, and ONR and Secret Service into the ambit of the Office of Unspecified Services. Um. President Gentle has no NSA as such. Hines in Metro Boston because of the NS implications of what they'd first come to unspecified services about two summers past. Both the head of DEA and the chair of the Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences now both standing here on one foot and then the other and twiddling the brims of their hats. This unwatchable underground entertainment cartridge that at first seemed to just be popping haphazardly up in random locales, a film with certain he's... uh, a film with certain he's given to understand from briefings, quote, qualities, <laughs> such that whoever saw it wanted nothing else ever in life but to see it again, and then again, and so on. It had popped up in Berkeley NCA in the home of a film scholar and his male companion, neither of whom had appeared uh, for appointments for days, and now lost in meaningful human activity, henceforward by all appearances, were the scholar and companion, the two cops dispatched to the Berkeley home, the six cops dispatched after the two cops never followed up their code five. The watch sergeant and partner dispatched after them. 17 police, paramedics, and teleputer technicians in all until the lethality of whatever they'd caught sight of presented itself with enough clarity for somebody to think to go around back and kill the Berkeley Homes power. The entertainment had popped up in New Iberia, Louisiana. New Iberia. (laughs) Uh, Tempe, Arizona, had lost two-thirds of the attendees of an avant-garde film festival (laughs) in Arizona State U's Entertainment Studies Amphitheater before a level-headed custodian killed the building's whole grid. Jay Gentle had been apprised about the thing only after it had popped up and taken out a diplomatically immune Near Eastern medical attache and a dozen incidentals here in Boston, Massachusetts late last spring. Oh, wow. That guy from the first 100 pages. That back again. Somebody we haven't talked about since, uh, what, like fall of 2020? 2020, yeah. Uh, These persons, now all in wards, docile and continent but blank, as if on some deep reptile brain level uh, pithed? Reptile brain level pithed. I don't know. Tyne had toured a ward. The person's lives meanings had collapsed to such a narrow focus that no other activity or connection could hold their attention. Possessed of roughly the mental slash spiritual energies of a moth now, according to a diagnostician out of CDC. The Berkeley cartridge had vanished from an SFPD evidence room, an electron micro, uh, mi- microscopy co- toss of which had revealed flannel fibers. The DEA had lost four field researchers and a consultant before they'd bowed to the intractable problems involved in trying to have somebody view the confiscated Tempe cartridge and articulate the thing's lethal charms. The strongest possible language had been necessary to restrain a certain famous crooner from attempting a personal review of the thing's qualities. Hey, Trump, <laughs> hey, Trump don't look at the eclipse. <laughs> yes. God damn it, he's good. <laughs> Uh, but, but, uh, brother, I feel like I'm, I must really, really, uh, it seems of tantamount importance you, that I view the You the will die if you look at this. <laughs> look at this thing. Yeah, other people will. Yeah. But not me, baby. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm too good. All right, Peter, your grandma, but, but I'm, I'm different. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, neither CDC nor the entertainment pros wanted any part of any controlled viewing tests. Three members of the Academy of DAS had received unlabeled copies in the mail, and the one who'd actually sat down to have a look now needed a receptacle under his chin at all times. <laughs> Reports. Yeah. We, we've not heard before of any any information of uh, duplication and distribution of this uh uh, of this product, right? So there, there was a mention in um, when the Antitoire brothers got smoked. Um, that, that was a good segment. <laughs> that they had their yeah, it was amazing. This is, this is a good book. Hot take. <laughs> <laughs> the 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 cartridge viewer they had did was not able to watch master copies, meaning uh-huh. that it sounds it was possible that they watched it and uh, they had the master watched it and but did the, not. The, but it, like it did not read. It turned. It. it turned into like static. Okay. So that that's a, the implication. I don't know if that's what actually happened, but that's the only reference to copying cartridges. But it sounds like things are being disseminated uh, and sent, you know, unlabeledly. Uh, Tyne's been dispatched here uh, in part to coordinate substantiation. There's also the special pocket Franklin planner size chart. He charts the daily AM penis measurement in daily. <laughs> Though to the initiated, the little leather notebook could look almost like anything statistical at all. By now, several USO test subjects, volunteers from the federal and military penal systems, have been lost in attempts to produce a a description of the cartridge's contents. The Tempe and New Iberia cartridges are in custody, vaulted. A sociopathic and mentally retarded Lance Corporal (laughs) at Leavenworth, strapped down with electrode appliques and headset recorder, was able to report that the thing apparently opens with an engaging and high-quality cinematic shot of a veiled woman going through a large building's revolving doors and catching a glimpse of someone else in the revolving doors, somebody the sight of whom makes her veil billow before the subject's mental and spiritual energies abruptly decline to a point where even near-lethal voltages through the electrodes couldn't divert his attention from the entertainment. (laughs) Uh, 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 a woman walks through doors. I thought it was a woman cooing over you like a baby. No, uh, Tyne staff had sifted through dozens of entries before deciding that the intelligence community's terse little name for the allegedly enslaving entertainment would be the Samiz Dot. The Samiz Dot. PETs on sacrifice subjects revealed unexceptional wave activity with not near enough alpha to indicate hypnosis or induce dopamine surges. Attempts to trace the matrix of the Samiz Dot without viewing it from induction on postal codes, e-microscopies on the brown padded uh, mailers, immolation and chromatography on the unlabeled cartridge cases, extensive and maddening interviews of those civilians exposed, place the likely dissemination point someplace along the U.S. north border with routing hubs in Metro Boston slash New Bedford, Bedford and or somewhere in the desert southwest. What do we what do we mm-hmm. know about these two places? The U.S.'s Canadian problem is USOUS. Anti anti Onan activities agencies, which takes us to 229. The AAOAA, Unspecified <laughs> Services Most Elite and Least Specific Division, which. Most Elite and Least Specific. On Hugh Steepley's latest field assignment, is paying his salary, though his checks and alimony's garnishment are routed through something called the Foundation for Continental Freedom, which one fervently hopes is a shell slash dummy. Uh, back to the text, anti-anti-Onan activities agency's special province, so to speak. The possibility of Canadian involvement in the lethally compelling entertainment's dissemination is what has brought to Metro Boston Rodney Tyne, his retinue, and his ruler. 
there. Oh my God, he admitted. Okay. It's the it's the plot of the book. It's the, re- <laughs> it's the reason we're all here, put in plain text <laughs> with a, a digression about on penis measuring. Yeah, but let's uh, keep going. Well, oh, do you want to keep going or do you? Oh, I mean, yes. we've got to do a few in the next few days. So well, I think do there's do one a... more segment that okay, should great. be. Well, I guess we're only at 60 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Late PM, Monday, 9th November, year of the dependent all undergarment. Uh, for reasons that Pemulus couldn't for the life of him, Orthostice seemed to be in there with Dr. Dolores Rusk's office, interfacing with Dr. Rusk well after regular hours. Pemulus paused at the door on the, his way by. Nicole assessment, after our work together on your fear of weights, would be that your presenting maladjustment, Ortho, like many males and athletes, is that you're suffering from counterphobia. Fear of linoleum? <laughs> it was unmistakably the flat twang of the darkness in there through the do- door's wood. Is that the darkness as in uh, the absence of light or the darkness as ortho, in the darkness the, dice. Or, or the, the darkness dice? Yeah, the okay. latter. On the level of objects and a projective infantile omnipotence where you experience <laughs> magical thinking about your thoughts and the behavior of objects relation to your narcissistic wishes. I love to think uh, to experience magical thinking about my thoughts. Mm-hmm. The counterphobia presents as the delusion of some special agency or control to compensate for some repressed, wounded inner trauma having to do with absence of control. Over linoleum? (laughs) My suggestion might be to forget linoleum and objects in general. In, for instance, an analytic model, the types of traumas counterphobic reactions cover are almost always pre-Oedipal, at which stage objects' cathesis is Oedipal and symbolic. For example, small children's dolls and action figurines. I don't play with no goddamn action figurines. G.I. Joe typically being cathected as an image of the potent but antagonistic father, the military man, with G.I. representing at once the general issue of a weapon the Oedipal child both covets and fears and a well-known medical acronym for the gastrointestinal tract, with all the attendant anal anxieties that require repression in the Oedipal phase's desire to control the bowels in order to impress or, quote, win the mother, of whom the Barbie might be seen as the most obviously reductive and phallocentric reduction of the mother to an archetype of sexual function and availability, the Barbie as image of the Oedipal mother as image. So you're saying I'm overestimating objects? <laughs> if you recall correctly, Orthostice had previously visited Lyle in the weight room and Lyle said, never underestimate objects. The world is very old and is made mostly of objects. So now he's in there with Rusk getting, uh, uh, con- getting contradictory getting <laughs> Jesus, Jesus Christ, somebody just tell me what I should think about objects. <laughs> I'm saying there's a very young ortho in there with some very real abandonment issues who needs some nurturing and championing from the older ortho instead of indulging in fantasies of, un- of omnipotence. Uh, of all the uh, the weird and specific things about the uh, the tennis academy, make it, <laughs> making or even having it available for uh, these children to go to a heavy, heavily Freudian analyst. Yeah. Uh, seems the most insidious. Yes, it's awful. I ain't omnipotent, and I don't want to ex no goddamn Barbie doll. Then Dark's voice went way up and cracked as he said something about his bed. If we recall, Orthostice's bed is getting getting moved around and it's driving him crazy. Okay, it's driving him crazy. I assume he says something along the lines of, "I just want to find out why my bed keeps moving." <laughs> 
Dr. Rusk's office door had a non-conducting rubberized sheath on the knob and Dr. Rusk's name and degrees and title and a needlepoint sampler with a little heart inside a big heart and a cursive exhortation to champion an inner child today, which the little kids at ETA find puzzling and upsetting. Pemulus, pausing by habit first at the silent locked infirmary door and then Rusk's bo- bottom crack lit door on his way across the Comad lobby, was wearing the most insolent ensemble he could throw together. He wore maroon paratroopers pants with green stovepipe stripes down the sides. <laughs> the pants cuffs were tucked into fuchsia socks above ancient and radically uncool Clark's wallabies with dirty soles of eraser, eraserish gum. He wore an orange fake silk turtleneck <laughs> under an English cut sport coat in a purple and tan window pane check. This is hurting my eyes. What is the most insolent ensemble you could throw together? Uh, let's talk about it after. Okay. I'll try to, I'll try I'll to try think. It, yes. He wore naval <laughs> He wore naval shoulder braid at the level <laughs> at the level of ensign. He wore his yachting cap but with the bill bent up at a bumpkinish angle. He looked less insolent than just extremely poorly dressed, really. <laughs> I'm just thinking we were just like, talking about this last night. Yes, we should have a fashion conversation. All right, we'll, th- we'll, do, we'll talk fashion after this. Dr. Rusk's door was cool against his ear. Jim Trolch had been coming down <laughs> B's Hall just as Pemulus was leaving and said Pemulus looked like a hangover. <laughs> Through the door, Rusk was urging Stice to name his anger, and Stice was proposing to name his anger Horace after his old man's late pointer that had got into some coyote bait when the darkness was nine and was much missed by the whole Stice brood back in Kansas. The old wallabies were from Pemulus's older brother's incomplete public school career and had boogerish little greebles of dirty gum all around the soles' perimeter. The socks belonged to Jenny Bash, and she made it explicit she wanted them back laundered. You, th- you think he's uh, do you think Pemulus is getting laid by uh, banging Jenny Bash, Get- getting her sock, getting into her sock supply. I don't know. It's also one of those things that like they seem you to know, be paying way too much tennis to have any sex. But yeah, I, and also like one of those things where like you live in a big dormitory when you're like a freshman and sophomore. Sometimes like girls just give you socks because yeah. they think it's funny or yeah, cute or whatever. And it doesn't matter. The sport coats checked arms were several centimeters too short and exposed ribbed cups, cuffs of shiny orange acetate esters. <laughs> the community and administration buildings downstairs was real quiet. It was like 2,100 hours, supposedly mandatory study period, and Hard's crew had gone home, but the custodial graveyard shift hadn't come on yet. Pemulus moved noiselessly northeast to southwest across the lobby's shag. Except for lines of lamplight from under a couple doors, the ETA lobby was pitch black and the outer academy doors locked. There was an odd vehicular shape near the north wall's trophy case that Pemulus didn't pause to investigate. He lifted up slightly to keep the little S.W. Hall's door from squeaking as he opened it and entered the administrative reception area, snapping his fingers softly to himself. A loose music played in his head. Tavis's reception area was empty and dim, the wallpaper's clouds now stormy dark. It wasn't totally quiet. Light came from Mrs. Ink's doorway and from the crack under Tavis's inner door. Lateral Alice Moore had gone home. Pemulus activated her third rail and played with her chair as he made a very quick survey of the material on her desk. Activating the PA mic was out of all question. Two of her five drawers were still locked. Pemulus scanned behind him and popped another breath mint 
and sat quietly for a moment as Moore's chair slid back and forth along the rail, his fingers in a steeple under his nose, considering. <laughs> her, her chair is on a rail? Yeah. It's, so she can only move lighter. Yeah, and it seems to be somewhat automated. Light shone from the crack of Tavis's inner door because the outer door stood open. Pemulus didn't even have to put any kind of ear to the wood of the inside door. He could hear the hiss and high-speed grind of Tavis's stair blaster and Tavis's breathless, recessive voice. You could tell there was nobody else in there. You could tell Tavis had no shirt on and an ETA towel around his neck and his hair a sweaty curtain down one side of his little head as he ran to keep up with what reminded everybody of a Satanishly possessed Filene's escalator. He was exhorting himself in a kind of fast rhythmic chant that sounded to Pemulus like either total worry, total worry, or no, don't worry, no, don't worry. <laughs> and, uh, and see, Pemulus could envision Tavis's round belly and little titties of fat bouncing with the action of the stair blaster. You could hear the sudden muffling when he probably brought the towel up to dab at his slanted mustache. Tavis's doorknob had no insulating rubber sheath, Pemulus noted. Uh, Pemulus's ensemble's belt was a plastic thing with chintzy fake Navajo beading purchased by little Chip Sweeney at one of last fall's Whataburger souvenir stands and subsequently transferred to Pemulus during a big buddy tennis as game of chance exercise. Oh, he, he got a, the belt he off his the, little, like a gambling. He won the belt off his little buddy. God. The beading patterns were in, uh, is it Gila, Gila Monster? Gila, Gila Monster. Monster. Gila Monster, orange and black. The orange a different shade than Pemulus's turtleneck. He could never resist biting down once a mint had been melted to a certain size and texture. Who can? Yeah, who among us? The doorless dean of academic affairs' office was a blazing rectangle of light. The light didn't spill very far into the reception area, however. At close range, sounds issued from the office, but not exactly words. Pemulus checked his fly and snapped his fingers under his own nose and assumed a business-like stride and rapped firmly on the doorless jam without breaking stride. The heavier blue shag of the office itself slowed him down a bit. He stopped once he was all the way in. 18A John Wayne and Hal's Mumsley Wumsley were both in the front of the office. They were about maybe two meters apart. Hal's Mumsley Wumsley. The room was lit overhead and by four standing lamps. The seminar table and chairs cast a complicated shadow. Two homemade pom-poms of shredded paper and what looked like the amputated handles of wooden tennis rackets were on the seminar table, which was otherwise bare. John Wayne wore a football helmet and light shoulder pads and a Russell athletic supporter and socks and shoes and nothing else. He was down in the classic three-point stance of U.S. football. Ink's incredibly tall and well-preserved mother, Dr. Averland Condenza, wore a little green and white cheerleader's outfit and had one of Delin's big brass whistles hanging around her neck. She was blowing on the whistle, which appeared to be minus the little inside pellet because no whistling sound resulted. She was about two meters from Wayne, facing him, doing near splits on the heavy shag, one arm up and pretending to blow the whistle, while Wayne produced the classic low-register growling sounds of U.S. football. Is this like a dream or something? This is real. Pemulus made rather a show of pushing the bumpkin-billed yachting cat back to scratch his head, blinking. Mrs. Inc. was the only one looking at him. I probably won't even waste everybody's time asking if I'm interrupting, Pemulus said. <laughs> Mrs. Inc. seemed frozen in place. Her one hand was still up in the air, fine fingers splayed. Wayne craned his neck to look over at Pemulus from under his helmet without changing his three-point stance. 
The football noises trailed off. Wayne's got a narrow nose and close-set, witchy eyes. He wore a plastic mouth guard. The musculature of his legs and buttocks was clearly outlined as he squatted forward with his weight on his knuckles. There was way less time passing in this office than there seemed to be. <laughs> Hoping for a second of your time, Pemulus told Mrs. Inc. He was standing schoolboy straight, hands clasped demurely over his fly, which on Pemulus, this posture did look insolent. <laughs> Wayne straightened up and moved toward his clothing with no little dignity. His sweats were neatly folded on the dean's desk at the rear of the office. The mouth guard was attached to the face mask and hung from it when removed. The chin strap had several snaps Wayne had to undo. Nice looking helmet, Pemulus told him. Wayne, pulling hard on his sweatpants' cuff to fit them over a shoe, didn't reply. He was so fit that his supporters' straps didn't even dent his buttocks. God. Mrs. Incondenza removed the mute whistle. She was still split down on the floor. Pemulus made rather a show of not looking south of her face. She pursed her lips to chuff hair out of her eyes. I predict this will take about two minutes at most, Pemulus said, smiling. Good place to stop. Yeah, that's a good place to stop. Wow. Someone, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. Someone has been misbehaving. <laughs> uh, all right. So we've got, what, three three segments there? Yeah, fin- finishing Radio lens, ones. the orthostice conversation, uh, the, the pemulus ca- catch, and then the uh, tine penis measuring. All right. Uh, I Not much more to say about... Uh, Randall Randall lens. I think I said everything that might take away uh, from it at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think we can move on. More information about uh, the entertainment and the Office of Unspecified Services. Mm-hmm. Uh, that segment seemed mostly like an info dump with the addendum of giving a good detail about a guy carrying around a ruler to measure his dick every day and yeah. record it. I mean, again, that's that's like I don't know. I'm trying to get some information out, but you also have to make it entertaining. Yeah. So you put a little, uh, put a little, little joke in there. A little flair, but yeah, he, he has a habit of like actually, um, finally putting out like specific information as to say like, yes, all the uh, all the info that I've spread out over 500 pages and a bunch of endnotes. Yeah, it's all, it's all. Yeah, we got to circle right back around to it, and mm-hmm. and just spell it out. Mm-hmm. Um. Give me the details. The Boston Arizona axis see uh, still uh, is very funny to me. It, it makes sense in a weird way. Yeah, like Arizona somehow does make sense of of like Arizona is is it reverse Boston, Boston? Yeah, it's like it's the anti. They're like yin and yangs. Yeah, like all the energy of Boston is e- equaled and reflected by the energy of the state of Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um. I think I think that's a that's an insightful take. <laughs> <laughs> I I agree. Um, all right, good insight. And then Ortho, the darkness dies. Ortho, who's being driven insane because his, his, his bed keeps his bedroom keeps getting rearranged, and you know it's bad if you go to Rusk because no one wants to go to Rusk. So he's really been getting driven out of his gourd. Wait, so I I lost the the thread a little bit there. The the Ortho. Uh, shrink thing flowed pretty directly into Pemulus is doing a bit of like night stalking during a study period and he passes that door on his way it it sounds like he didn't break in 
It sounds like they still have access to these. It's not breaking if the door's open. It sounds like they all have access to these offices and stuff. It's not like locked as far as I know. I just, I don't know how much uh, crime he's committing by being there, but it also sounds like he has made quite a regular habit of, of stalking around the grounds just, at just night, spying on people. Because he knows the yeah. stair, Tavis on the stair blaster. Um, <laughs> the stair blaster. So what do we think? We've got Avril... Uh, it, Avril, the Quebecois uh, intellectual, fucking one of the only Quebecois guys at the school. Not just fucking him, well, but in so, but in a in football kind of, uh, uniform, yeah, we're calling her, her son. Own son. Uh, yo, that's messed up. That's messed up. Um, and a nice pairing with the uh, you know, the Freudian analysis of orthostasis because is that not yeah. heavily. Freudian. Yes, in absolutely. The uniform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's my main thing about that: the description of uh, Pemulus dressed like a dipshit. Does that not recall at least somebody you've known in your life who has dressed that way, like a dipshit, uh, by just pulling all the most garish cr- clothing that they have? Mm-hmm. You know. Um. You know, I, I've actually never been super good friends with anyone who like goes that far. We were talking last night about there's the difference between people who like Lord of the Rings and they just like it. And then people who like Lord of the Rings and they start wearing capes everywhere. Yeah, exactly. Like that. I think that's where I was thinking of, but I am trying to think of what my most insolent outfit would be. It'd just be a bunch of, yeah, clashing. He sounds like he, he looks like he's in the band of Montreal. (laughs) You know, I did an interview with, uh, he sounds like a clown. I interviewed one of the guys from Montreal. Uh, and we asked them about um, the lead singer, the the main guy. Do you know? Remember that guy's name? Ke- Kevin. Yes, Kevin Barnes. Kevin Barnes. Um, and we were like, basically, yeah, we were interviewing like the bassist. And this is on college radio, and we we're like, you know, talking about them and the band and the presentation. And they're like, oh, do you like doing, you know, presenting the band in some way? And mm-hmm. and he was like, oh, that's mainly like Kevin's thing. And I was like. I mean, what what do you make of like what is Kevin's thing? And the and the basis was like, I would say the main thing about uh, Kevin is that he doesn't know if he's a samurai or a geisha. <laughs> which a good, I always to me that sounds like a, a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. That's always stuck with me. Is like, uh, like you know what? And maybe that is a good summary of its fashion. Is uh, when up. you um, when you look in the mirror and you put on an outfit, you don't know if you're a samurai or a geisha. <laughs> Yeah, the um, I'm I'm sure it it hurt y- y- your eyes to. It also sounds like an Ella Emhoff outfit in some ways. <laughs> like it, it, I'm sure it hurts your eyes to look at Pemulus in an outfit like that. But if you pull it off, if you wear the outfit and don't let the outfit wear you, then then that's that's. Fashion. I mean, that's the the eternal thing is like basically you can wear anything you want if you are wearing it and it's not and, you, and it's not wearing you. I subscribe to the fashion um newsletter. Blackbird spy plane and they sent a email this week that I thought was great about the um the like the the backfiring compliment to to neg thing mm-hmm. where if someone say you're wearing an outfit or maybe just like a new pair of spa- snazzy shoes or a sick jacket and then someone comes up to you and like the first thing they say is sick jacket and you're mm-hmm. like oh is this cool or does this stand out so harshly amongst my fit that they're they're actually noticing they're noticing the item not the whole 
the the whole effect of me having a good outfit. Yes, exactly. So, mm, which I'm like, I'm a, I'm aware of that. It's like you almost don't want the first words out of someone's mouth to be like, "Nice shoes, bro." Like maybe they notice it after a while and be like, "Okay, yeah, word." Uh, I'm seeing if I can. <laughs> you pull up the quote. A compliment can actually be a red flag, a sign <laughs> that a garment is wearing you and not the other way around drawing so much attention to itself that it necessitates comment from all kinds of swag deficient randos and fucks up the flow of your fit much as the same way a speed bump painted yellow draws attention to itself and fucks up the flow of a street. This is an insidious phenomenon known as the negative swag alert compliment. NSAC. <laughs> oh, they have a little graphic. They have a little of graphic with a, um, a clown emoji negative saying Car uh, cardigan is flames, my guy. <laughs> and I, I think... Uh, I, I like that Pe Pemulus does seem to be to be dressing for himself as a, almost like a, a socio-political statement in a way of being like, I know I know what you guys all think of me and I am that guy, but there's nothing you can do about it. Not after I have this leverage now that won't get me kicked out of ETA. Uh, but also um, it, it is because he, he know he does all kinds of uh, random identity or, um, you know, not malicious. That's other way. Illegal, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, banned, inappropriate stuff. It's it's the the peacocking in a way of being like, pay attention to the outfit, and then you won't think about uh, looking any further. Yeah, it's a classic bit of misdirection yeah. where you're blinded by the the Navajo belt and uh, orange silk uh, turtleneck, and then you can't see my my hands as they're picking a lock or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's kind of swag delicious. You know, the other co connection I made back to Avril is that she's dressed as a cheerleader and of course who was a cheerleader was Joel Van Dyne. Of course. And it was said earlier in the book that Joel and himself never had a sexual relationship but I don't think Avril knew that. I think she assumed that they were having an affair mm -hmm. and so that's clearly been uh, tr translated into this particular kind of fetish is of being a cheerleader. David Foster Wallace horny. Yeah, I think so. I don't really. I don't think this is a particularly horny book. He describes it's a it's pathologically horny. It's it, like it is, everyone it's skips like, straight from the fun stuff into the, the anxiety uh, stuff and and to the yeah borderline like I mean to, I was about to say kind of like mental illness like just, she's she's fucking a student that's like that's a crime <laughs> that is that's extremely wrong although he he might be eighteen but what does it matter it's he's still a student yeah. still in a position of uh of a uh, less power than the headmaster. Um, I don't, he, if he is, if Wallace is horny, it's in a Freudian way, yeah. which is like clinically horny. He's uh, working out it, lots of not, psychosexual not, stuff, you know, a, a hot blooded of the, uh, yeah. you know, of the body. It's, 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 of it's a horniness of the brain. Yeah. Um, which, <laughs> you know, the, too much the brain, juice. It's too much juice in the brain and not enough in the loins. Yeah, the brain is the largest erogenous zone, but it's it's not. <laughs> is that right? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not it's not quite the the same, you know, mm. of of that hot hot blooded, uh, like visceral horniness. <laughs> the there's a sentence that I'm never going to be able to forget. I can't remember who wrote this. I believe it was for like GQ Esquire, like one of the like magazines. And it was the por the porn actress Savannah who was, I believe it was in the nineties uh, committed suicide after getting in a car accident that disfigured her face. 
because she was at such a low point in her mental health that she was like, I'm never going to work again. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so in this piece about her that I read, someone was talking about an early boyfriend that she had. And he, he said he, he knew that a woman's real clit is between her eyes. <laughs> what do you, what do you think of that? I like that. that is, as soon as I read that, I was that like, phrase, Oh God, never, that's I, an all timer. I don't, I'm not sure what to do with that. I exactly. will, I will never not think of that. Well, now you all, you all have to know. I was actually looking for the piece again the other day because I remembered that line specifically <laughs> and it seems to have fallen off the internet, but if I could find it. all, Oh God. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a good place to end it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a woman's a good... real clit is between her eyes. We learn something new every day. Uh, take that out to the bar with you, uh, friends. Yeah, and, take, uh, take that out to the this the bar with its uh, endless neon <laughs> bottle and uh, have your way with it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, where are we at? Oh, yeah. That's good enough. Oh, yeah, babe. Oh, yeah, babe. That's good enough for an episode. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs>